This is episode 35 of Critical Transit. You can find more about me and my work at criticaltransit.com. Thank you for listening again, and uh, happy to be back. And uh, as you can tell, it's been a little bit of a while between shows, but I'm trying my best. Um, It's been blazingly hot here in Minnesota, where I've been uh, staying for a while, and, uh, and will continue to stay for a while. And uh, and I just started a new job, so things have been a little little crazy. But um, so I wanted to give you a show today that is not going to have any frills, not going to be any music. We're just going to uh, just get some some great content out to you. Going to focus a little more more on transit today than we have been in previous shows, and uh, and that's because I am going to play uh, or read and respond to several emails that I've received over the past few months. And I've kind of been saving these because these are more related to transit design and operation. I've kind of been holding on to these and I guess they sort of fit well together. So I figure, uh, today would be a a good day to, uh, to play those. Um, I'm also going to talk a little, little bit about the efficiency of transit and uh, debunk some of the myths put out by uh, recent, or maybe not so recent, uh, Freakonomics post uh, and something that's been echoed all over the media. And uh, the media is going crazy. Oh, yeah, look, we told you so. We told you transit isn't very efficient. Um, but but um, just wait. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that. So um, so thanks to everybody who's written in. You can reach me at feedback at criticaltransit.com. And I uh, aim to respond to every email that I get. And, uh, and I'm play most of them on the show. So I just spent about half an hour and probably all of my brain power to try and figure out what is wrong with the audio on this show. Uh, so listen to it. Um, it's almost like a buzzing in the background and I, I think it might be the air conditioner that's running to help me cope with the, uh, the heat. Um, it is about a bazillion degrees in here uh, and I'm trying to do my best here and unfortunately I'm not going to turn it off. So um, that might be it. Um, I guess hopefully that's it because by the time I record another show, we should be done with this heat wave. Um, but we'll see. And I apologize in advance and hopefully that doesn't make it any harder to listen to. I don't think it's really all that bad. Um, but if it is, uh, send me feedback or if you think it's something else, send me feedback. So let's, um, without further ado, let's get to some of the, or let's, let me, uh, read this, um, discuss this Freakonomics post. Um, so it it was about the end of 2012. Uh, some a bunch of people sent me this article, and I just never had a chance to uh, to get to it. Uh, but on the Freakonomics podcast, and, and possibly elsewhere on the site, um, the the host uh, Stephen Dunder, in, uh, or the guest Stephen Dunder, discusses a study by Eric Morris, who's a professor at Clemson University who makes the claim that an individual taking the bus uses more energy per person than driving a car. Um, you know, now you should have alarm bells going up, uh, you know, right away over this. Um, and of course the media has been jumping over this. Um, you know, look, we told you, we told you. Um, but let's, so let's step back a minute and let's, let's look at, at some facts here. Um, the efficiency of a bus depends on how many people who use it. Okay. That's pretty intuitive, right? Um, if you have, uh, one person on a bus, uh, then you know it's going to use more energy than one person in a car because right? buses are big; they stop a lot, they use a lot of fuel. Uh, I think that's pretty uh, intuitive. 
Um, and that's why a place like New York City scores best in, in terms of efficiency in general because, um, you know, even there the streets are built for cars and you sort of wouldn't know that the majority of residents and visitors don't have cars. But uh, the vast majority don't have cars and uh, don't use cars very often, you know, among those that do have cars. And uh, most people use buses and trains to get around. And, uh, you know, a subway train can carry over 100,000 people per hour. Um, and, you know, buses can carry many thousands of people per hour. Um, you know, and all these things obviously depend on you know, frequency and routing and number of stops and all these other variables that, that we talk about on the show. So the typical bus travels about five miles per gallon of diesel fuel. Um, that's not a typo. That's, that is just a fact that the buses are stopping a lot. Um, they're very heavy. They have a lot of people. There's, um, you know, just the, the nature of a bus. Okay. You know, trucks, very similar. Um, and so, you know, you know, modern hybrid electric buses are about 10% more efficient than that. Um, but a bus weighs 20 tons. Um, like I said, stopping and starting. Uh, I should put in a plug here for exclusive bus lane, signal priority, and stop consolidation. Obviously, those things will uh, speed up the buses. Uh, they're not stopping and starting as much. But basic math tells us we need at least five people on a bus to compare with the 25 miles per gallon of a typical SOV, a single occupancy vehicle. Um, or, okay, a hybrid car, you would need eight people on a bus to compare with a typical hybrid car at its best mileage uh, rating. And so, of course, if you only have five people, they could all go in one car. But uh, that's not how the world works. Um, you know, that's the vast, vast majority of car trips are either one or two people. And then most are only one person. So, you know, it's, that's not, yeah, it doesn't make sense because that's not how you're, they're not all coming from the same places and, you know, all this. Um, but if you're, if your passenger counts are in the single digits, you know, you'd be running smaller buses or, or cutaway vans, which can get up to 15 miles per gallon, per gallon. Um, and now you only need three passengers. So, I mean, okay, but still. Um, Professor Morris here claims the average bus carries only 10 people. Uh, now, I don't know where he got this data. Um, I'm very skeptical of it because it's very hard to get this kind of data uh, reliably. Many transit agencies don't even collect this kind of stuff um, in an honest way. You know, they report, they're required to report this number to the federal government and, and, uh, in order to get grant funding, but uh, many times the data is not super reliable. And, uh, yeah, and I'd, I'd, sort of, I'd question where he got that from. And, uh, and I'd also like to see some figures showing a recent increase in the number corresponding with the ridership increases we know are happening in every U.S. transit operator, uh, virtually every operator, um, because of various factors, transit ridership has been going up for the past decade or so. So let's take his number. Um, even assuming we all have 40-foot transit buses, we only need five people per bus, and we average twice that. So this research is not very thorough because he's saying... The average bus carries only 10 people, and it's less efficient than cars. Uh, but we know that we only need five people per bus, even if a car is getting 25 miles per gallon, which most don't, uh, especially in urban environments. Most average 15 to 20 miles per hour. So what? I don't understand what his what the problem is. Um, but this is this is sort of related to the. Um, it goes right to this empty buses critique that we hear often from people who are ideologically opposed to the idea of transit, uh, or at least transit near their house. You know, in other words, uh, the racists, they don't want those people near their house, um, or the people that just, you know, they don't want noise or whatever it is, the, um, even though it's a public benefit. 
Um, a lot of people call themselves fiscal conservatives. Um, they tend to oppose spending money on transit because of this potential for low usage. Uh, you know, they don't want to spend money on something if it might not be extremely efficient. But uh, you ever hear these people complain about spending money on roads and car culture and all the police that are required for to enforce car culture and the emergency response and all the deaths and everything else? We don't. They don't hear these people complaining about that. Uh, about the externalities when it comes to car culture. So I categorically dismiss that argument unless it's also accompanied by a demand that car drivers pay the full costs. And of course, even then, they leave out the non-tangible stuff like the emergency response capacity and childhood asthma. So we've been through this before, and I don't want to spend the whole episode talking about uh, responding to the empty buses critique, but I'll give a quick summary. Uh, you can poke through the list of shows, of past shows, and you can find, uh, it was probably somewhere around episode 10 that I talked about uh, the empty buses critique. Um, buses are designed to carry maximum loads. So, you know, the bus might have 60 people, and 10 minutes later, it's only got 15 people. But you have to have enough capacity for that 60 people for that whole route. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to, I mean, it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Um, I mean, you can start short-term buses and things, but you turn them around part way and whatever, but it's... You know, still, even then, you're going to have empty places and busy places. It's just the way that most bus routes work. Um, buses have to turn around somewhere, so they may take uh, inefficient routing because of the street network or because of political issues or somebody didn't want the bus laying over in front of the house or something like that. Um, so, you know, you, you got to turn it around. So if, if you get to, uh, you know, a big uh, high-capacity transit station and, you, you know, everybody gets off and, uh, you know, nobody's riding past there but you know you need to turn the bus around so if there's no turnaround then you know you got to go up and you got to go through some streets make a, a turn and sometimes it could be a little while so um and then there's also the political issues because once you have the bus running somewhere you, it's hard to take it away even if you only have a very inefficient route segment um it's hard to remove that um and don't forget you know political issues drive a lot of transit planning unfortunately and so um sometimes politics demands a route extension and sometimes that's how that works so don't forget these things um for maintenance reasons you're not going to maintain a spare fleet uh, you know of of smaller buses just so that you can run small buses uh in the middle of the day and then for rush hour you got to get out the big buses and then you're going to put them back and get out the smaller buses are you are you going to pay people to to drive those buses back and forth how, how is this all going to work? Uh, and then you got to maintain both vehicles. Um, the savings in fuel is negligible compared to all of those costs. Now, don't forget, of course, that um, the efficiency of transit is directly related to the design of our cities and towns and other places. Uh, people need transit, but we've designed places where transit cannot be efficient and effective at meeting the needs for access and mobility. Um, access being uh, to the need to um, the ability to get to essential services like uh, um, food and uh, school and work and medical appointments and all that stuff that you always hear people talking about and mobility being uh, the ability to just get around to just uh, to be able to move around your your city or, or where you live um, and things like sprawl traffic congestion one-way street pairs uh, denial of curb space in key places uh, general enforcement of a cars first policy even if it's unwritten 
Um, those all those things could make transit less competitive and less efficient. And everyone driving delays the bus and makes more people drive and delay the bus. So if you think cars are more efficient than buses, well, a big part of the reason is that cars are delaying buses. Um, so that's you know, if you were to take the whole picture, it doesn't it doesn't make sense. Doesn't add up. Um, externalities are always not considered. So uh, land use, um, less lower density means higher utility costs and greater utility use. Uh, traffic crime, uh, resulting in deaths and injuries, and just just general terror on the streets. People being afraid to walk around their neighborhoods, um, things like that. And uh, health problems like asthma, uh, cancer, obesity, uh, th- things that are resulting from particulate matter that we don't completely know yet. Um, we're not completely sure of these these links, but we know that they're there. We haven't studied them in uh, great enough depth. Um, and just the, the inability to get around. You know, I mean, more people driving cars hurts transit because then people don't use transit, so the politics of transit suffers, and then, then there's less of it, and it's just this constant idea that transit should pay for itself, and even though cars shouldn't don't seem to have to pay for themselves. Um, 30% of the population is, uh, is, is car-free by default. Um, they're children, uh, they're elderly, uh, or they're unable to drive. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, 30% of the population, we're just leaving out. And, and to say that cars are, you know, more efficient, people should just drive cars. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It ignores the host of benefits that transit provides. Um, also viewable as increased expenditures made necessary by car cities. Um, we subsidize the status quo with trillions of dollars annually, so we can change all this if we want to. Uh, but the bottom line is that running buses in low-density cities and towns is going to be expensive and inefficient because that's the way we've designed these places. Uh, what is the goal here? Is the but Remember, I say this all the time, public services should not be about profit. Okay, Public transit is a public service, uh, a very important one. And we need to ask ourselves what we're trying to achieve with transit service. Uh, there's what I like to think of as the five W's. Uh, who are you trying to serve? Uh, for what purpose? So why? Uh, where are you trying to get people? Uh, when? And uh, what does your service look like? Uh, how is it provided? So thinking about all of these things and coming up with a, a network that works for moving people around and and uh, meeting those goals. You know, are you trying to provide are you trying to provide access mobility uh are you trying to get cars off the roads what, what are you trying to achieve here and if you can achieve these things uh then that's a success um or at least if you can make a difference that's a success if uh, if you have even a few people who can't uh, who can now uh access the things that they need in in life um then you know by many measures that's a success but we don't measure that you know what we measure is is profit and um, I shouldn't say profit. We say we measure cost, and that's uh, you know, like I could go on forever about this, but um, but you need to think about what your goals are and uh, and how whether you're achieving your goals, and if not, then what you can do to uh, better meet those goals. So now I'm going to spend the rest of the episode uh, responding to some feedback that I've received and uh, talking more about those issues. So uh, stay tuned. I think you're going to learn a good bit from this episode. And uh, if you have feedback, please send it to feedback at criticaltransit.com. Uh, or you can go visit the website, criticaltransit.com, and get in touch with me that way. And, uh, you know, and I encourage you to share uh, your thoughts on your uh, transit experience, or if you have questions, 
Uh, a number of these are, are common questions that people ask me all the time. So if you have uh, questions, please send them in, and uh, and I would love to start uh, start a regular thing where I where I respond to listener questions about transit design and operation because uh, I love this stuff, and uh, I think you do too. you do too. Linda writes in from uh, somewhere in Canada. Uh, hi, Jeremy. Uh, thanks for the show. A friend recently introduced me, and I really enjoy the show, and I enjoy learning about transit. Um, I, I Oh, and then she goes on. Um, I work for a small transit agency in eastern Canada where, with a pulse point system. Just me here interjecting to let you know, if you don't already, that a pulse point is a transit center or hub where many routes meet, uh, or I guess at least two routes meet, and uh, for coordinated transfers so that uh, buses arrive and depart at the same times so that transfers are made easy for passengers so that you know that your transfer is basically guaranteed as long as your bus isn't more than anywhere from a few minutes to 10 minutes late depending on the the operator uh, then you know you're going to make your connection uh, you know you don't have to stand out in the rain it's just it's just very easy and it removes one of the barriers to uh, transferring which is a big deal it helps you uh, plan better service. So uh, the letter continues. Everybody here seems to hate the pulse point. They say it wastes time and is really annoying and difficult to make work. Uh, What are your thoughts on pulse points and specifically the importance of fighting for a pulse point? Well, thank you, Linda, for for that question. And um, this is something that I've talked about a little bit before, but maybe we should go into detail about the pulse point. So, as I mentioned, the pulse point is where all of the routes meet at, for coordinated transfers at a single point, or you, you could have multiple pulse points. Um, if you have a really big geographical system, you might have multiple nodes where routes meet. Um, transfers are essential because a transit system works as a network. It, the routes don't function individually, and though we have a tendency to measure routes uh, by individual performance, you know, revenue per passenger, things like that, um, the routes really function as part of the network. So when we, when you think about designing a system, like let's say you're designing a system from scratch, right, you, you're going to need more than one route. Um, it's going to be more than one linear route. Um, if you try to make a few routes that kind of serve everywhere to everywhere, um, you're going to have you're not going to be very successful. Um, you're going to have a lot of long indirect routes that are expensive and they're going to be lightly used because um, you're going to, well, number one, you're going to need more people to operate them because because they're long and indirect, they're just going to take a while and, and you're going to have uh, some duplicity. And and then you're going to be lightly used because, you know, people want to go from, from A to B and they know that transit usually takes longer than uh, driving in a private car, but if it starts to take twice as long or more, then uh, it's just not going to be useful. It's not going to not going to work out for their trips. They're not going to have enough time to be spending all day on on the bus. So what you need to do is you need to figure out a way that you can design a few routes that meet for easily coordinated transfers, so that people can can change buses. Now. A lot of people hate transfers. The, just the idea of transfers is something that sort of causes people to want to err on the side of fewer and longer, more indirect routes. But what what that does, as I said, is it, it wastes resources. If you think of transfers as not as uh, being annoying and, and difficult, but as enabling connectivity, 
uh, that's going to get you a little bit of a different way of thinking. So the the role of a pulse point is that you're, you're, what you're saying is you're coordinating these transfers. You're making it so the transfer is as effortless as it can be, right? Literally, all you have to do is step off the bus and walk, maybe walk down like, you know, 20 feet, maybe more than that, maybe more like 100 feet and get on the next bus. Um, and if it's cold, it's raining, snow, whatever, um, blazing heat, uh, like it is when I'm recording the show in Minneapolis, uh, you don't have to wait outside for long periods of time. Um, the buses come and go together, and and with a with a well operated pulse point, the schedules are done so that the routes meet each other basically all the time. And if uh, if one route is running a couple minutes late, then um, the others are held, uh, or or the you know the driver will ask the passengers you know who needs who who's tra- is anybody transferring you know where are you going. And, and those routes will be held a couple minutes. Now, one of the challenges of, of the pulse point is that you need to have, uh, there's two main challenges. You need to have enough time for the routes to complete their cycles on time. And you, know, to, you don't want routes coming in late to the pulse point because that's just going to cause delays to other routes and it's just not going to work out. Um, and the other thing is that you need to, each, each route has to be the same trip time uh, to go out and back or uh, like a multiple of that time. Um, if you have one route that takes an hour to go out and back and another route that takes 40 minutes to go out and back, well, then you're gonna, it's going to look like basically you have 20 minutes of wasted time, right? So what you have to do is you either have to you, – you can either like try to lengthen the route, uh, see if you can serve some other place, you know, increase that time from 40 minutes to an hour. But – you know, maybe that's not that's not worthwhile, um, or you you might try to um, you might try to get it down if you if you can sort of maybe shorten it and get it down to a half an hour that would work, uh, but you may see that that twenty minutes as as wasted time, and of course if you now if you had a system with a uh, much higher density and a lot more trips then you know you had a twenty minute pulse then it it wouldn't really matter as much. Um, but part of the draw of the pulse point is that for the passengers, it's very easy. They know that they can get a connection, and especially when you, especially in the most simple case, when you only have a few bus routes and they're all running at the same frequency and the same times, then all I have to do is check the, the schedule for the first bus because I know that when I get to the transfer point, there's going to be another bus. There's going to be whichever bus I need over there, and, and I can get it within a matter of minutes. That sort of removes the big hassle of making a transfer. Uh, I lived in a place in central Massachusetts for several years that did not have a pulse point, but did have a a transit center, basically, de facto transit center, um, where all the buses came together, but they came at at wildly varying times. And it was just very difficult because, you know, you might get there and have to wait 40 minutes. You might, um, the buses might be scheduled to uh, leave at the same time, you know, the bus you need might be scheduled to leave at the same time as the one that's arriving, but, you know, then you get a delay of a few minutes, and then, well, now you missed the bus, now you got to wait an hour, and then the schedules were infrequent, and, and especially when you have infrequent schedules, that's when you really need the coordinated transfers, and, um, and you might have the case where only certain routes are coordinated. Um, you really need to figure out what are the trip patterns, where are people going and transferring to, that we need to figure out, you know, which routes should be part of this. Um, some routes maybe wouldn't even stop at the 
at the transit center. Anything that you can do as a transit operator to make it easy for people to uh, just to not have to look up, not have to figure out, to just know that, okay, I get to this hub and I can get any bus within a couple minutes. Anything you can do to make it easier is going to increase your ridership and it's going to increase not only new riders but also regular riders, people who you know might be out somewhere and they, and they know that it's easy to get the bus. Um, so in in summary, um, Pulse Points great wonderful things uh, because they make it easier to use transit. Uh, they shorten the trip time and make it more understandable. And uh, and it's more efficient, right? Because if you don't have if you don't have routes meandering all over the place trying to serve every little development on the same route, then the route's going to be more direct, so it's going to be easier for your passengers, and your labor costs are going to be less because you're not paying as many people to do a million different things. A lot of agencies try to do this, and they find that there's just they just got routes running all over the place, and yeah, and it's just not not good, um, especially now when nobody can really afford anything. Now is a good time to take a look at small and medium sized systems and see if things like transit centers, pulse points, can help to sort of streamline the system. Next up, Dave writes in from Boston uh, and says, My city is currently considering late-night bus service. Uh, We have this discussion every few years, and it usually goes nowhere. Uh, About a decade ago, we tried late-night bus service, uh, having buses running until about 2.30 on Friday and Saturday nights, but they were lightly used, and the board said they were very expensive, and they were discontinued after only a couple years. What are your thoughts on late night service, specifically how to implement it and how to build something that's really useful and going to be well used and sustainable? So thanks, Dave, for that email. Um, I, I lived in Boston for a number of years, as, as you know, so uh, um, although I don't, I don't think we've met. Um, so I can uh, probably offer a lot on this, but, but I will say that um, Boston is probably the largest city in the U.S. that doesn't have any kind of late night transit service. Um, and that's not really a proud distinction to, to have, but, but, um, Boston is, you you know, when, when you don't have late night transit service, your city sort of evolves to, to basically be set up so that the people who are out at night are using cars or bicycles or walking or, and so when you try a pilot program of late night service, it's difficult to build up ridership because so many people are used to using other modes at that time anyway. Um, there's not a lot of traffic at night, so it's you know that's one thing that's not really getting people onto to transit. Uh, parking is easy and cheap at night, so you know you can so there's that there's that cost barrier that's not there to get people onto transit. And a lot of your late night ridership is going to be infrequent trips. You know, people who are going to occasionally stay at a friend's house late or going to um, going to a bar is a, a common one, um, you know, hanging out and stuff like that. Um, or, you know, make the, the occasional trip, like, you know, they might have like a 5 a.m. flight at the airport and something like that. And so it's a lot of your ridership is going to be very occasional. And um, to be honest, from a, well, obviously, while I think transit should always run all the time, uh, you know, in an ideal perfect world, I think we should focus not on the discretionary trips because from a social justice standpoint, these are 
the least important. You know, these are people who will figure out other ways of, of getting around. And and honestly, running running every bus route all night is a waste of fuel and a waste of labor costs and everything because it's just going to be inefficient. Um, but that said, there are a lot of people who work at night or early in the morning or um, these are the people that I'm really concerned about, that the people who are having to spend a lot of money on transportation when they're not really making a lot of money in the first place um, because most people who are working these shifts just not making a lot. So, and, and when you when you design a good system, you can make it very efficient and easy to use and all that great stuff. So to take the case of Boston, Boston has a uh, very highly used subway system. And uh, I'm not going to say a modern subway system, but um, it's, it's very easy and uh, fast and reliable during the day. Uh, but it shuts down, like all the bus routes, it shuts down at 1 a.m. Or, or before, and uh, sometimes as early as, as midnight in some places. And uh, it doesn't start up until between 4 and 5 in the morning, sometimes a little later. So what, what Boston did a few years ago is they tried to run some bus routes meeting at the downtown, the government center, which is the, the sort of the financial district center um, near where the rail lines converge. Um, and they had the buses route to meet there for coordinated transfers. And uh, if they, after a couple of years, they decided that it was too expensive. Um, and to that, I say that, of course, it's going to be expensive because it's late at night. How many people are out walking on the street at night, right? Um, but you don't complain that uh, sidewalks are not well used at night, so you know we shouldn't have them at night, or um, you know the roads should be closed at night because not a lot of people drive on them, and it's expensive to pay the electricity for the traffic lights, and um, it's sort of it's it's a cost for providing a public service. Um, transit is not again, you know, transit is as I'll say this many many times. Transit is not something that's there to make a profit to bring in money. For other things, transit is a basic public service, and while some aspects of it may bring in revenue, most of them are going to cost money, and that's a public investment that we deem justifiable, as people have said and voters have said in city after city over time, and especially recently, all these votes to expand transit in smaller cities and rural areas. Transit is something that that provides a very important public benefit, a number of public benefits. Um, and so, not least of which, um, you know, in late night transit, uh, keeping people from driving drunk is one you always hear, uh, you hear very often. Um, and just, you know, giving people a, a safe, reliable way to get around is, is very, very important. Now, if you live in a place where you don't have access to transit and, you know, maybe bicycling is impractical or you don't have a working bike, um, and you can't. Um, you can't walk that far, then, I mean, you're dependent on, on other people, uh, other people driving who, you know, may not be the best drivers in the world, um, may be going out and have a few beers and be like, oh, it's okay. It's, it's not a big deal. I can, I can drive. I'm fine. So anyway, so that's part of the importance of late night transit as far as, as far as how to make it work. So Boston has a big rail system. It is possible Contrary to what MBTA officials keep saying, it is possible to run transit to run train lines specifically overnight. Um, this is done in Chicago, and uh, this is also done in New York. And the, they they always say, well, in New York they have four tracks. Well, not everywhere, and uh, Chicago doesn't have four tracks. Chicago only has two tracks everywhere. Um, 
Chicago runs their service, their late night service on two lines, uh, the red and the blue lines, and those run every half an hour, I believe, and in the you know the real overnight period, like one to five. And uh, in New York, the most of the subway lines run every twenty minutes overnight. Now, sometimes there are detours. There is sometimes uh, you know the need to close down a line. And um, in the case of New York, you know, sometimes they can close a portion of a line and people can just walk a few blocks to a different line in the densest parts. Um, not so much in places like Chicago, uh, where you you often, you can sometimes have to shut it down and, um, and get shuttle buses, which is not really a terribly big deal because there's not a lot of traffic at night. Uh, or more commonly, you do uh, single tracking. When you're only running service every 20 to 30 minutes, it's really not a big deal to coordinate uh, single tracking for a, for a portion of the line. Um, there are certainly more hazards out there when people are working on the tracks and there is a there are trains using the track next to it. Um, but you know that can all be managed, and everybody is highly trained professionals, and that's that can all be done. Um, but most places uh, don't have subway systems, and uh, and those that do, I mean, if you're going to run it all night, it's it can be expensive unless you're unless you're filling up the trains like New York generally does at night and in many places, then you're, it's not going to be cost effective to run the trains. So, but how about making use of that bus fleet that you're, you're not using for pretty much anything else? Um, and, um, so, so there's a couple things to consider, right? We need to design a good network, right? You need to think about the, the locations and, and the routes. Um, your, the service, may look vastly different at night than it does during the day. Um, have a look at Toronto's late-night bus map or San Francisco's all-night network. Um, these are two examples of cities, you know, big cities that have some rail lines, but also, you know, lots of bus lines. And the service that they run is, you know, there are many bus routes that run all night, but there are other bus routes that only run at night that basically are sort of providing something that's useful that may require people to walk a little longer or, you know, may sort of consolidate a couple of routes or um, kind of fill in for a rail line that's not operating, uh, that sort of thing. So your network may look different depending on what the trip patterns are, where people are going at night. Uh, For example, there's no need to have a a big transit hub in the central business district at, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning. There's nobody there. There's nobody going there. There might be some people that live there, but, I mean, they can walk a little bit. But for the most part, there's nothing at all going on downtown financial district at 2 o'clock in the morning. So while it may make reasonable sense in a, in a big old city to have a, a transit hub down there during the day, um, at night, you know, think about think about something else. Think about kind of identify several areas that are hot spots of activity at night and and think about how do you connect these places and how do you provide a base network so that, you know, come up with some kind of criteria so that maybe every, every part of the city is within, I don't know, or every part of this core service area is within three quarters of a mile or a mile of a a late night transit route. Okay. Like I said, people may have to walk a little farther, but you're going to provide an option and it's going to be a reasonable option uh, for, for people. And obviously by using criteria like that, you're going to have places that are that are far less than than that distance, and um, and there's gonna be some overlap too. There there will be some places that just like in the day, the the demand pattern exceeds the standard, so you have to provide more service anyway. 
Um, so you, there might be places where you're running service every 20 minutes, even though other places you're only running every hour or, or something. Um, so that's a, one thing to think about. Uh, another thing is uh, frequency. And use transfers because, like I said, there's not much traffic at night. Um, and you can't be running routes all over the place, just as I, I said, you know, when I was talking about pulse points. You can't be running these routes all over the place. So, you know, just figure out places where people can make easy coordinated transfers and and you, you build your service on that um, because the transfer is not really going to be a big deal if two buses are in the same place. All you got to do is walk back to the next bus very easy. Um, and these can be points of information. You know, people at night may be, um, especially, you know, when you get to drunk people, they may not be as familiar with where they're going and that sort of stuff. You can, you know, these are points where you can sort of get information out there. Um, you need to consider, um, so yeah, make make your design, you, you want to design a good network. And, um, and if you can coordinate these transfers, having like 20 or 30 minute frequency, come up with something easy to remember because a lot of people that are out at night may not be on a schedule so you just uh if they know that okay the first bus the first late night bus starts at one o'clock and it runs every 20 minutes until five in the morning and then the regular service starts to begin um that's easy to remember and then people can can work with that and the last thing is that i know in the boston's previous experiment they charged a good bit more for the late night service um, believe, I believe that their fare went was d- during the day at the time was like a dollar twenty five, and then it, at night it was two dollars, and and then they eventually stopped accepting uh, monthly passes. Um, that's a big mistake because I know you're trying to increase revenue, but um, a lot of people are out at night in groups, and if it starts to become you know ten dollars for a group of four people to take the bus, well then uh, you know they're m- much more likely to take a taxi. And you're going to lose a lot of riders. And like I said, the point of late night transit is not to make money. Um, don't you should never ever think of transit as as making money. You want it to be a useful, productive service. Um, you don't want the bus routes driving around with nobody on them, usually. But you need to, you know, even if if you have five people or ten people on a bus, um, it's still a good use of service because these are these are different people than you're going to have the next night. So you're providing a service, a way for people to get around. And an important thing to remember is that just as the the last trip of the day is usually going to be a little bit, it may often be uh, kind of light on people because most people are using it as an insurance trip. They're, they're getting trips before that. And they know that uh, the late night is the same, right? So you're, you know, you go in, say you're going into, you're, you live in Cambridge and you're going to Boston for the, for the evening. Um, you know, you live eight miles away and, uh, and you, you plan to, you figure you're probably going to leave around 10 PM, but the, you know, this is the chance you're going to hang out you're going to stay, go to a friend's house, whatever. And you might be there till two or three in the morning right now. You're going to have to either drive there or plan on taking a taxi back. If you, if, if you get that and which means you need to have a good bit of money. Uh, so, or, or you, you, maybe you, um, you have to leave at 10, which is before you want to leave. And so you're, you're missing out on opportunities, whether it be to, to go and, um, and see friends or to go and, uh, visit places or whatever you're going to do, you're missing out. If you know that there's a late night bus, then you might not use it all the time. 
but you know it's there and it's going to help you make trips and help you participate in in the life in the city and that's that's something that i think is um is very very important the same applies to like commuter services from from uh, other parts of the region when you're if you have uh, midday service for example well it's some kind of reassurance that well if you know if i'm at work and you know my child gets sick or there's some emergency then i have to get back well there's going to be a bus in the middle of the day that i can take back but if if there's not a bus in the middle of the day a lot of people are going to drive to work every day even though uh, they don't need to and they'd rather take the bus just because they they're worried about that emergency situation so um and I mean the guaranteed ride home programs where they exist provide help for that, you know. But it's not everywhere, and most people don't actually know about that or, or believe it. So anyway, thanks Dave for that email. I hope I answered the question there. And uh, and let me know uh, let me know what happens. Keep keep me posted because I don't follow Boston as much as I'd like to these days. So um, I'm really interested, and I'd I'd love to see uh, them get some late night service. The next email is from a listener in California, and. Uh, I've, I've read this email like three times already and I'm trying to get the volume right. And freaking GarageBand doesn't want to... But I think I got it this time. Um, basically, the, the summary of the email is uh, about holding buses at time points. Um, it's a common practice of transit agencies to, uh, you know, if the bus, basically if the bus gets to the time point, which is one of the locations that's listed on the schedule, if the bus reaches there early, then it should wait until the time it says and then leave. Um, and it seems to make sense. So the question is uh, that he was saying here that his transit agency says that too many people complain when the bus is not, well, when the bus is held uh, because they, presumably people on the bus already or just have to sit there longer and they don't like it. So thank you for that email. Um, yes, um, you're absolutely right. I agree with you 100%. Um, sometimes, well, this is the common, this is a common complaint that you'll get um, from passengers that the bus is sitting there. Um, if it's explained to passengers that uh, the bus is sitting there so that other people don't miss the bus, so that the bus stays on time, and the same is done for them at their bus stops, uh, usually they'll understand. Uh, some people are just impatient, and that's just the nature of that. You can't fix that, uh, whatever. And, you, you know, you're not going to please everybody. Um, some agencies try too hard to please everybody, and then they do dumb things. Um, so don't don't change your policy based on a few complaints. Um, remember that you only hear from people who have something negative to say, and you very rarely hear from people with a, a compliment. So um, don't take negative feedback as implying that everybody is upset or that there's actually a big problem. Um, if you're if you find yourself regularly holding buses for more than a minute or two then something is probably wrong with your schedule or you have a very high degree of variability in running times. Um, if you have a very high degree of variability in running times, uh, that's usually going to be characteristic of something like a shuttle service or you know an express commuter route or something where there are long nonstop segments uh, such as on a highway. Um, you know, maybe you have like an airport shuttle um, there are cases where uh, it doesn't make sense. Um, so let's say you're, let's say you have an express commuter route uh, that making five stops in a in, in a suburban area, um, and then going running express into a downtown area. You're going to want to make sure that you don't leave early from those places in the suburban area. But when you make after you make your first drop off in the uh, in the city, uh, it doesn't matter if you leave early because nobody's boarding there. 
right? Um, and you need to make sure that that's made clear that uh, people can't board the route there. So nobody, you know, shows up and expects to board the route there. Or you might decide that the occasional person might board the route there and that's okay, but we're going to make a notation in the schedule that the bus might leave up to five minutes early or something. Um, this is done uh, in some places. I know um, particularly for trains tend to do this um, where their stops are uh, primarily for discharging passengers. And so they, they don't really care if they, uh, if they leave a little early because it benefits most people on the train or, or I mean, in the bus <laughs> that happens to, um, and other examples, you know, point-to-point shuttles. If you're just if you're just going from one place to another, then obviously, you know, that this doesn't apply. But for your typical urban bus route, or uh, I guess suburban bus route, um, where you're making a bunch of stops and people are getting on and off, sometimes unpredictably, then you need to you need to hold. And uh, even if nobody ever gets on at a particular stop, uh, it, it might be somebody's day to get on there. Um, so you need to make sure that you're that you're waiting. If you're if you're regularly waiting more than a minute or two, then you need to make changes to your schedule because it means you have too much time in the schedule. And um, if there's a lot of variability and you you want to like kind of pay out the schedule with extra time, you need to put it at the end or just increase the recovery time so that you know you're not sitting when you don't need to be. Um, and, but also sometimes the schedule is is not adequate, so you would you would lengthen the schedule and then what happens is that um, there are going to be trips where the old schedule was adequate uh, or the driver's just driving fast or whatever and you're going to have too much time on those trips so you need to sort of delay. Um, There are other things you can do besides holding at bus stops. Um, One of the things is just to drive a little slower Um, and the driver should be given this this responsibility and this discretion. Um, They should know that you know they have their schedule and you know the more we're computerizing everything and gps everywhere and uh there's a little console on the bus that that can tell the driver that you know you're you're two minutes early or you know five minutes late or whatever and it's not something you know if the bus is five minutes late there's not really anything the driver can do about it but if the bus driver knows that he's two minutes early or even if you don't have a computer there it's just you know they have the schedule and uh you know it's it's their responsibility not to leave early so if uh if they don't want to be sitting there at the bus stop uh leaving you know compl- getting uh passengers complaining um thinking that the driver just stopped because they wanted to read the paper then uh you know you need to drive a little slower um you know if you if, if there's a light that's about to change to red to yellow then just just stop and wait for it um you know there's there's various there's those things that you can do to just sort of delay a little bit enough that you can, and often like one red light cycle will be enough that you can just, you know, that, that killed a minute and now, now you're on time. Um, but like I said, if you, if this is a regular thing, you need to reevaluate the schedule and in, in places where there is uh, any, any traffic whatsoever, you need to make sure that the schedule is appropriate for different times of day. Um, a lot of agencies have the same running times all day. And, and that may be fine for rural areas where there's uh, no traffic whatsoever or the traffic is always the same at all times. But, you know, I mean, obviously, in, in any place where there's any kind of traffic in the rush hours or something, then in the afternoons, like you're going to need more time in the schedule then than you do at the, at the outlying periods. Now, as far as variability in running times, um, if you have a very high degree of variability, such that you know the a particular route segment might take seven minutes one day, fifteen minutes another day, three minutes another day. Um, you know, and 
without any any big events or anything else going on if that's if that's your your routine then what you know you you might pad the schedule by by increasing the recovery time at the end so that you're at least you're starting all your trips on time or you know, 95% of them on time um, so at least you're solving you're solving that as an interim but ultimately that's a waste of time and what you really need to do is look up look at why the trips are so variable and uh, you know are you just you know, is it the situation where the traffic congestion varies widely from day to day? Um, do you have unpredictable boarding patterns? Uh, are there a lot of, uh, you know, train grade crossings where, you know, you're having to wait for a freight train with 100 cars to pass on, you know, on some trips and it's unpredictable? Or maybe you have a drawbridge. Um, there's a, an area with a lot of police activity. I mean, any number of things can be causing high degree of variability and, um, these are not usually easy things to fix, but uh, they can be addressed uh, with you know more diligent effort. If, if you're really interested in getting running times under control, then uh, that's it, that can be addressed. And that's one way to, to deal with that kind of problem. If you don't, so so if you don't hold the sket, the hold the buses, then there's there's two basically impacts depending on which. Uh, and how for, on the frequency of service, right? If you have infrequent service, so let's say you're running service every half hour, then, uh, well, people are just going to miss the bus and they're going to have to wait another half an hour. Um, that's probably the worst that's going to happen. Um, it shouldn't happen, but that's the worst that's going to happen. And, you know, if you have some kind of emergency or if there's, uh, if there's a big delay up ahead, then you might, on a case-by-case basis, the dispatcher might authorize the the driver to you know keep going don't sit there because you're going to need those couple minutes um that'd be a case-by-case basis and you know usually like unplanned you know emergency detours that kind of stuff um but on a on a frequent service so if you have service running every 10 minutes for example then if you don't hold buses at time points well now your bus is going to be early it's not going to pick up as many passengers because it's you know the passengers that would have been on that bus will now have now missed the bus and um it may not be an emergency for them if they just have to get the next bus but your now your bus is going to be early um if the bus in front of it is a minute or two late well now that's how bus bunching happens um now you're going to have two and three buses arriving in a row and when you have two buses arriving in a row and service operating every 10 minutes well now your service is operating every 20 minutes so and, and unpredictably so. Um, it's not going to be even intervals because you know bus, bunched buses don't don't run according to schedule. So that's how you get bus bunching and long gaps in service. And that's one of the big problems. One of, one of the biggest problems of urban bus service is that if I go out there expecting a bus every 10 minutes and I have to wait for 18 minutes or 20 minutes or 25 minutes, that's terrible bus service. And um, And what that means is that if I have to get somewhere on a schedule, then it means I have to know that at least every once in a while the bus is going to be, it's going to take 20 minutes or more to come to the stop, and I have to allow that much time. So it basically just increases my trip time. Um, and that's that's not good, especially if I'm doing this trip every day. Uh, it makes the bus take longer for people, even though the trip length may be the same. As far as people complaining, um, people will complain about everything. Um, the more, the more evenly you do it, if you do it everywhere and you, you know, only do it for a minute or two and not all the time and you use other techniques like, uh, driving slowly and, uh, you know, stopping for red lights, um, 
and uh, and things like that. And you could also, you know, when you're if you're early, you can also like when people are getting on and paying their fare. You know, you don't have to you don't have to rush out. Um, so yeah, by doing those things, you're less likely to have to hold. And if you still have to hold like all the time for more than a minute or two, just you know revisit the schedule. I have another listener here uh, writes about uh, signal coordination, um, about traffic signals. Um, everybody seems to want to be anonymous. Uh, that's okay, I guess. Um, but I won't. Uh, I won't out you to the government or anything if you uh, want to give me your name. Um, but that's okay either way. Um, so, uh, the listener writes: uh, my my city is considering uh, signal coordination as an alternative to. Uh, transit signal priority in conjunction with a BRT project that we're working on. How do you feel about coordinated signals? Are these useful for buses? I think they're not, but I'm curious to hear what you have to say. Well, thanks for the question. Um, I, I agree with you, generally. Um, it's it's interesting. I, th- I think what you're getting at is probably that uh, and you said as an alternative to transit signal priority, and I'm guessing that uh, some traffic engineers have decided that uh, they don't want to put the bus first and um, or that, you know, it would cause too much disruption to general traffic. Those poor SOV drivers. Uh, so, yeah, um, coordinated signals is, is something sort of falls into the category of uh, trying to help buses by helping general traffic. There's There's a myth out there that's basically convenient for the traffic engineers who want to move cars as fast as possible that uh, there's a myth that uh, by by helping general traffic move faster you're automatically going to help buses Uh, and that's not true for several reasons one of which being obviously uh, the easier you make it to drive the more people will drive Um, that's it seems like a basic concept to me um, but i know a lot of people have trouble with this um, so, like, you know, the cheaper it is to park somewhere, the easier it is, to, the less traffic there is, um, the less of a headache it is to drive. You know, if you if you live in a rural area where it's very easy to drive everywhere and the bus involves a big hassle, then, you know, you're just going to drive. Um, and so not that coordinated signals is a huge thing. You know, most drivers tend not to notice something like that, but it is it is something. Um, and, and, of course, the other thing is that Buses operate differently than general traffic, right? So general traffic, you know, wants to go from from A to B, and they generally are moving through, you know, in longer distances. Um, they're they're not stopping constantly like buses are. So while while cars are you know going to driveways and stuff like that, uh, generally if if there are coordinated signals, in other words, if um, you know if you keep driving at say 20 or 30 miles per hour like you're going to hit a whole bunch of green lights that, that kind of coordinated signals i think is what you're referring to um if if you're in if you're talking about that um if, you know for most drivers that's beneficial because you're you know maybe you're going from place to place but you're you know getting on the road and you're just going you know once you start going you get a whole bunch of green lights and it just speeds up your trip and it it makes it easier um and there's you know less backups and traffic and and everything um that is only useful for buses if you're talking about an express route or a very limited stop route that is running long portions on an arterial road uh, where it could benefit from signal coordination. But most bus routes are making very frequent stops. So if you're, you know, you're not going to benefit that much because by the time you stop and get going again, the light's going to be red 
Um, so it really doesn't matter what, what happens to the signals um, in that way unless you have true signal priority for transit, which is sometimes it's TSP, transit signal priority, where the system detects the bus approaching and uh, either either changes the light immediately or gives it some kind of priority so that you know it's it's going to wait less than if that bus were a car. And that's a real benefit because it helps keep buses moving. And um, and sometimes the, they only work if the bus is running late. Um, that's sort of a that, that's one thing because I mean as I mentioned you know in terms of holding buses I mean if you're helping buses move along when the bus is early that is not so great. Um, but that's more of a more advanced form of, of TSP. The more common is just the bus approaches and the signal detects that the bus is approaching and changes the light. Um, many times this is associated with a, a queue jump lane where. Um, the bus might be in like a shoulder or a parking lane or whatever um, at a near side bus stop that is a, a bus stop right before the intersection. Um, and then the bus might get a, a green light um, pretty quickly. It get a green light for three to five seconds. And so then it can go forward and then it can merge over into the, the general traffic lane ahead of the general traffic. And then the other cars get the green light and keep moving behind the bus, um, which removes the, the basically the problem of the near side bus stop where it's it's next to impossible to merge over well not next to impossible but it's difficult to move over and it wastes a lot of time and the same is true of a far side bus stop if, you know but obviously you can't control that with the signal so that's the only time that that would ever be useful if there were signal is if there were signal priority coordinated with it um don't try to fall for this ploy where it's like oh well you know general traffic helps buses uh, that's not true uh, so thanks for thanks for writing, and if uh, there's any more clarification that I can offer on that, then uh, please let me know. Thanks again to Nick and Katie from the Progressive Podcast Australia for uh, writing in. Or we kind of write back and forth, and um, and they're both really awesome people. They uh, have really taken to the uh, car-free stuff. Um, they really liked my anti-car rant a couple of episodes ago, and. Um, they are really trying to, uh, live with, uh, you know, take the bus and, and bike and, uh, and they've, they live in Perth, which is, uh, not the most cycle friendly place, uh, or transit friendly place. Um, but it's, it's always inspiring to see people in other places trying to, uh, live a car free or car light lifestyle, um, in places that traditionally are not thought to be, uh, very transit friendly. And, you know, a note on that is, is that um, w- whenever I've traveled to new places, it's very common that people tell me, uh, oh, you can't, you can't live here without a car. You need a car over here. And in 99.99% of all cases, basically everywhere that's not like a rural area with no transit whatsoever, you can get around just fine without a car. Um, certainly it, it would be easier in many situations to have a car because, uh, you know, transit in many places doesn't run that late or it doesn't run that frequently or, you know, it can be, it can be more difficult to structure your life around bus schedules, uh, especially if you have children and uh, that makes it even more difficult, you know, with their commitments and everything, but it, it certainly can be done. And, uh, and if you have a bike, it makes life so much easier. I know that not everybody has a bike and not everybody can ride a bike. Uh, most people can. And so that, uh, that certainly makes life a whole lot easier. Um, you know, I've been living car free for, uh, well, my entire life. I never owned a car and it was very rare that I ever drove one. Um, you know, I've only just borrowed other people's cars on occasion. It's not like something that I've 
really done. And, um, you know, now I drive a pickup truck with a trailer for work. Um, I work for one of the bike sharing systems and, um, that's, it's sort of a different experience for me, uh, being on the, on the car side of it. Um, but you know, I think of it as a, as a service vehicle, which it is. Um, and so, uh, ultimately in an ideal world, we wouldn't need, uh, motorized service vehicles because we'd have non-motorized service vehicles, uh, such as cargo bikes and things. Um, and as biking would become more viable, you know, more and more people bike, it would become more viable to move things by bike because customers would begin to expect that and there would be more money to pay people to do that. So it would, it would be a, a more successful enterprise. So that's, but it's, it's, it's always encouraging to see people sort of getting around by transit and by bike in these places where uh, transit is, is more difficult to use. Um, and I've heard this everywhere. I mean, maybe, um, well, even except when I lived in New York City. When I lived in New York City, like that wasn't a thing. And one of the things I really liked about New York City was that uh, so many people use transit. Basically, everybody used transit, it seemed like. So that, uh, you know, we know that more than half the trips made in New York were by transit. And I think that's the only place in the U.S. where that's true. Um, and so because of that, uh, it was just assumed that you would get around by transit or, uh, or occasionally by bike. So, uh, you know, people weren't like offering you rides and being all weird that you weren't getting in a car and all this other stuff. Um, and even in big cities like Boston and Chicago, I got plenty of that, um, where people get, you know, why is it always, uh, I don't know. Why am I always the weird one when I don't want to get in the car? Why, why are they not the weird one? And they refuse to take the bus. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's such a weird thing. But anyway, um, I wanted to thank Nick and Katie for uh, promoting the episode and um, and for their uh, sort of journey. And they should uh, change the name of their podcast to Progressive Podcast instead of Progressive Podcast Australia. Because even though they talk about Australia quite a lot and that's where they live, uh, everything that's going on politically in Australia is applicable to all of the other Western world and uh, and. Yeah, everywhere it's it's it applies to people everywhere all these it's the same social justice issues you know you got the same uh same racist same homophobes the same you know idiots in power warmongering and and all this uh immigration you know they're turning away they're turning away uh, people arriving by boat from indonesia you know uh and i mean here in the u.s we're turning away people arriving uh from mexico climbing over fences i mean it's you know it's, all these the the um specifics are different but it's all the same issues, all the same stuff. And, of course, the same free trade, you know, globalization, and especially austerity policies that are killing us and destroying transit systems everywhere and other public services. So uh, I really encourage you to, to give that a listen. And uh, regardless of, of what their name is, um, they are still awesome. They're at ProgressivePodcastAustralia.com. And you can find me and my work at CriticalTransit.com. Uh, that's where I uh, write about stuff uh, very occasionally, and uh, I keep saying it's, say it's going to be redesigned, but it, it is happening uh, very soon. And uh, I also put up uh, this podcast called the Critical Transit Podcast, which you're listening to right now. You can find that at criticaltransit.com. You can uh, message me on Twitter at Critical Transit or on Facebook at Critical Transit. You can email me feedback at criticaltransit.com. I'd love to hear from you, whether you have a question, uh, response to something I said, disagreement, uh, wholehearted endorsement, whatever you got to say, I would love to hear it. And, uh, anything interesting, unique in the world of transit, uh, that is particularly interesting. So, uh, yeah, so get in touch and share what you have to say. And I look forward to hearing from you. 
Uh, we'll be coming to you again uh, sometime in the next couple of weeks. Uh, I'm not going to set a date because I haven't been very good at keeping my promises there. Uh, not that I haven't tried. Um, so um, at some point this show will become more regular. Uh, but I have work and other things, and right now the show is not, not paying me any money. So, um, But I'm doing my best, and I will get you a show in the next couple of weeks. And uh, I have a number of exciting things coming up. Um, I have a podcast on Denver that's going to be coming up. I have a podcast on Minneapolis Open Streets, a bunch of interviews I did on the street from the first Open Streets event of the year, um, also known in some places as Ciclavia or uh, Sunday Streets, Sunday Parkways, uh, basically car-free streets with the community festival and all that good stuff. Um, so I have that coming up, and I have a number of interviews that I'm trying to set up right now. So um, it's going to be a great year for critical transit. So, uh, yeah. Um, once again, hit me up, and I will talk to you soon.